everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree. For more insightful content, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Today, we present a conversation between Lion Tree and Kindred Media founder and CEO, Arie Borkoff, and Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, two of the co-founders of the recently launched political media brand, Punchbowl News. Anna and Jake were co-authors of the must-read Politico playbook and left amicably to launch their own business at the beginning of this year. Tune in to hear about their accidentally auspicious timing, as well as the focus on content and legislation that defines their relentless reporting. It's a great insight into the workings of a modern media brand. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Kindred Cast. Today, as New York and many other cities are back open. I am joined in person with Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, the founders of the most exciting political media company and community to launch in 2021, Punchbowl News. Punchbowl started in January of 2021 after Anna and Jake left their posts as editors of the popular Politico playbook and have since been moving and growing very rapidly including several daily blasts of their free and subscription Punchbowl newsletters, podcasts, research, and virtual and in-person events. Kindred Media is proud to be an early investor in Punchbowl and a supporter. And so I'm very excited to welcome you both to the podcast. And Anna, it's also very special to have you because you grew up in a town in North Dakota called Kindred and your high school. I love the synergy. That was the that was the um, prerequisite for investing and it had to have some connection to Kindred, <laughs> Kindred North Dakota. Exactly. <laughs> it's great to have you guys here. Great to be here. Yeah. So Thanks nice so to much. have you visiting. Absolutely. Well, it was a great time to launch a new uh, media company, uh, so to speak. How does it feel getting off the ground in early 2021? I mean, not just because of uh, politics, but really because launching a company during a pandemic, especially in the media industry when things were all in upheaval. But I think it was just pretty surreal, frankly. I mean, we had an idea for a long time to try to start something on our own. But I mean, this is the first time we've ever met in person, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty wild to I think know. about that for investing and getting a whole company and hiring people and to do it all virtually is certainly looking back on it. It will be a story we'll tell our children for sure. Relief work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our job, by the way, in, in a time period where Anna and I kind of looked at each other thinking, well, this is either going to be really fortuitous or this is extraordinarily risky because the Economy was in good shape, but still, you didn't know what was around the corner when we left in December 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you had each other. We did. <laughs> which we've, we've been partners for a long time. So we wrote a book together and we wrote a playbook for four and a half. But Jake actually recruited me. I did. I recruited Anna to Politico at the behest of Jim Van Dye, who went out to start Axios. But Anna and I, when we kind of looked at each other at the end of 2020, or kind of in the, I guess the middle of 2020, we always said to ourselves, we had a friend who tried to convince us to do this many years ago. Like, you guys could do this for yourself and you could be as successful. And we didn't think we could and we were scared. So we put it off a little bit. But we always wanted to try to find a way to stay in business with each other with whatever we did. Anna had no idea what she was going to do. I kind of had no idea what I was going to do. It's been a wild ride. It's been fun. I feel badly giving Zoom credit for all these things. I feel like- <laughs> 
they're gonna call Eric's gonna call and take a cut for all these uh, deals. Yeah, but, exactly. but yeah. imagine how many cuts, how much money they should have made. Yeah, off exactly. Of but, but that's what came across like kind of off the virtual setting was that you guys had a partnership of doing business and a camaraderie of trust, but also a way of really approaching the business side of news right off the bat. And I think in an environment at that point where advertisers were not really complying because of media and obviously a pandemic, you, I thought, had it well in hand about how to approach advertisers in this kind of environment. I think it has a lot to do with your relationships, Anna, and also the kind of news that you focus on. Yeah, I think from my perspective, oftentimes journalism and business, you know, a lot of journalists think like, oh, they're in conflict. I actually don't think. I think you have a really strong business model that actually does really great journalism. And for us, one of the underpinnings that I think really makes us different is we are laser focused on Washington. We know who our audience is. We have a credo, power, people, politics, and everything we do, that's the North Star. I would say also, like, we try to focus on the politics of governing. We've seen so much media over the last five, seven years that's been focused on what I just think is garbage. Anna's going to kill me for saying that, but just really <laughs> trivial nonsense. And there is this entire building, 20,000 employees in the Capitol, 10,000, whatever it is, who are hungry for information about what people are doing and the game. And it's really like, it's a community that's just waiting to be served in so many ways, because a lot of the DC base publications, and I don't mean the Post or the Times, I mean some of the smaller ones, have not kept up with the time. I think Anna worked at Roll Call mm -hmm. and saw this up front. I mean, Roll Call was like the league leader in that stuff, right? And they kind of never transitioned to online or they waited too long. The paywall, and I mean, yeah. all of those things in terms of the business, I think, ended it. But to your point, Jake, I think too, I mean, we really wanted to think about this as a community, right? This concept of not just pushing out information, thousand word stories, or even little bulletins, but kind of that information loop, right? Your readers are your source are your advertisers. And if you can have that and have a really fundamental kind of circular notion of your business, I think it works really well. I'm going to add one more thing to that. What you said made me think of this. If you think about this from a customer service point of view, journalism feeds you information and then just says, see ya. Like, <laughs> we'll, we'll catch you tomorrow. And yeah. tomorrow's hope a you got it. And like, yeah, yeah hope you understand, yeah. right? Journalists are like these detached operators in this this is not a criticism of journalists. It's just this is the culture of the business. We felt, and we did this at Politico, that we could have kind of this, what we call a constant cadence of content, which is we put out one free newsletter a day, two subscriber newsletters a day, and then we have community events. We did them virtually for a long time. We would do these brown bag lunches, which get couple hundred people like on a Thursday afternoon for 20, 30 minutes to talk about the news and to ask questions of us. That's yes, very engaging. Yeah. Are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about that? And yeah. we do this on Sunday nights, the look ahead, which is the next week in news. So we just think there's a better way to do this. Stuff. Yeah. I think what you're doing is creating news that people actually want to know about from the Hill. And we'll talk about what Punch Bowl is all about. But you did a survey recently of mm -hmm. people yep. that are really in positions of power and influence. Can you talk about what that survey taught you? Yes, I have been really excited about this idea. I think that oftentimes you hear from the principal or the leader of the party, and what we both truly believe is that the staff behind them know so much, and they often are actually driving what's going to happen on Capitol Hill. And they're very media shy, traditionally. And so we started something called The Canvas. We're working with Locust Street Group as our partner, actually, in doing the polling and the survey. But it's an anonymous survey of very senior-level staffers on the Hill, and it really gets to 
to the pulse of what is actually going to happen. I think in the first one, one of the most interesting things I thought was the fact that anonymously, most Democrats even thought they were going to lose the House, right? They would never say that publicly. But when you start to look at where some of the issues are, where there could be bipartisanship, people are much more honest when they know that you're not going to necessarily say who they are. But I I didn't even tell you this, Anna. A a fellow journalist who's not working for us came to me when we announced it and said, people have tried to do this forever. It doesn't work. And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) It seems like very straight up to me. I think we could do this. And we did it. And I think we even learned some stuff from the first survey that we're putting into play in the second survey, how to ask questions, what questions to ask that will be useful. I can't tell you how many people came to us afterwards just suggesting this is really useful and this is really interesting to us to figure out what people on the ground, I mean, because members of Congress are torn in 5 million different directions. I mean, you would agree with this, right? Like are coached on the issue at hand right before they walk into a room and then deal with it and move on to the next thing. Staffers are really steeped in policy, really steeped in process. They're the real experts. So, I mean, getting their pulse is really, I think, important. Yeah, there's a lot of power in knowing that there's a confidential forum one-on-one, but that the perspective of the aggregate will be then taken back and saying, Mm -hmm. this is what everyone's saying, without having to compromise any individual conversation. You know, it's really interesting because we've thought for years about ways to do that in person, which is very difficult, right, Anna? You'd agree? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's tough to get the pulse of people like that in person. But we found this way to do it virtually, which I think is cool. But when, when these new media platforms are launched, oftentimes they're launched to serve like a younger demographic. So like Clubhouse was launched on the audio platform, obviously TikTok a few years ago. Is your demographic catering to like the younger demographic that would not otherwise be interested in politics? So I don't think it's an age thing. I actually think for us, if Nancy Pelosi's chief of staff and Mitch McConnell read us, then the concentric circles out of power all read us, right? So that means all the people who are influenced in the industry, any company or CEO that touches Senior uh, level at the just, White House, too. You know, and then I also think you have basically a really active, and we're really excited about some of the things we're talking about in the fall, about doing around the concept of the battlefield of politics, which was the 2020 election, is now in Washington. All of those things, this existential crisis that people felt that they were having, whether you were a Republican or a Democrat when it came to 2020, and who was going to win that election, is now going to be fought in the Capitol. What's going to happen on climate change? What's going to happen for regulations? What's going to happen for roads and bridges, for broadband? We feel like we should have as many readers, hopefully, and we get them when they're 20 years old. And then when they continue their life cycle as people will continue to be Punchable News subscribers. But I do think, and this is where I get myself in trouble and where Anna starts clenching the table. No, I think that news organizations or any, I don't know, this is just my having been an entrepreneur for six months. Where my <laughs> it's un- a very steep, <laughs> it? Yes, yes, my yes. uninformed opinion on this. I think that if you create a product around an age group, it's not a great idea, just because I think that mm-hmm. if you create a product around a fleeting time in someone's life, then that moment's going to leave them when they are no longer a 28-year-old Hill staffer, and they're a 35-year-old Hill staffer, and they're like, nah, I read that when I was young, and it, yeah. it doesn't really speak to me But anymore. the freshness is what's important. Yeah, and also we feel like we write it how it is, and yeah. we are subject matter experts. You said look like you want to say something. No, I think tone is super important. Yes. I think that it's not talking down to people. It's explaining things. So my mom in North Dakota, who just is fascinated by politics and wants to support me, can read it and understand what's happening, but so too can you who's you know in business, and so too can President's Chief of Staff. 
all of those people can read it with interest and get something from it. And I also think that we are, like Anna says, talking down, and I think that's a really good way to put it. We're also not lecturing people. Like, the game is the game. I didn't create Congress. I didn't create the rules. I didn't create the moral code by which they live. I just recognize that they live by this code and and I have to write about it. I have to meet them where they are. And I'm don't not, don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. <laughs> right. And don't even hate the game, actually. <laughs> and it's, a, it's yeah. not a value judgment yeah. where I think right, right now so much of journalism, you know, from the left or the right, it's a lot of talking at different things and hating each other's side. Like, that's not how we approach this. And also know who you are. We know what we are and what we want to be as a company and as a content company. We're not trying to be something that we're not. We cover governance and the politics of it and how people get power, keep power, and increase power. We feel like that lane is super clear for us. And what do you want to be? We haven't really come up with like a credo beyond power people politics, but I do think that like we want to be the premier content company in politics and governance. We're not looking to create the next New York Times. That's not what we're interested in. We think large newsrooms don't serve their audience well, don't serve their employees well, but we want to be the premier if you are existing in government or existing in concentric industries around government, we want to be the place where you come to understand what's going on, how it happens, why it happens behind the scenes, and also bringing the audience closer to the players that make it happen. Did I forget something oh, on that? That's right. Yeah. On a very fundamental level. It's, yeah. It's actually what's happening versus the uh, kind of vitriol or the gossip right. or anything like that. It's actually the lawmaking and yes. what it means to your lives. But it doesn't have to be dry. That's the other thing we feel strongly about, right, Anna? And what's going to happen next? I think one of the things yeah. that I think is always the next turn of the screw, where I think oftentimes the daily news cycle just is trying to regurgitate what happened. We want to say, actually guide you to what is next. And I think that's something that is a real value prop for every, every yeah. reader. Here's a really interesting, this is in real time, and this will probably be old news by the time this airs, but so today Joe Biden is meeting with Shelley Moore Capito, Republican from West Virginia on infrastructure. Talks are kind of at their termination point, probably. We don't know for sure, but that's certainly where it seems according to everyone we're talking to. So like, what do we think about tomorrow? We think about how do both sides walk away? Why are they walking away? Like, what is forcing them apart and how do they pick up the pieces from there? We're not going to write about yesterday. People know what happened yesterday, yesterday, and they're on Twitter, they're talking to the member of Congress, but like we could bring to bear our expertise, which is we talk to so many people and we could say, okay, now here's what you should be looking at. Yeah. And other news organizations, I think, are afraid to do that. Don't you think so? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be subject matter experts, right? Yeah. I think you have to have a real ability to have analysis and an undergirding of like what actually, because you can't be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, well, you can point. be, but it doesn't look great. But, it doesn't but, look great for but you. people have embraced your launch. I mean, DC is obviously a fickle town. Yes. You left political on very friendly terms. Yep. And DC and the launcher of Punchbowl has been embraced and widely beyond DC. So how does that happen? Because it's not known to be people a, like Anna. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I think we wanted to be really careful threading the needle. It was really important to me that we left on good terms. Politico was a great home for us for a long time. I think we wanted to be on. Entrepreneurs. We wanted to try something different, be nimble, be able to be decisive, create and launch products in different ways. You should talk about that for a second about why don't you talk about that, the creating and launching products? I think that's a really important point of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I think we think is fundamentally different for our business model is oftentimes media companies or just companies in general, right? You like launch a product, the life cycle goes on and on and on mm -hmm. because you have revenue behind it, right? 
I feel strongly that we are better served as a company and advertisers are better served if you launch a product and it has an actual sunset to it. We did that in the beginning or on the first 100 days, something called The Opener. And Amazon was a sponsor, but it was around kind of key figures during Biden's first 100 days. But we didn't keep it going because it was making money, right? We said, okay, like that actually served a purpose for our readers. In that moment of time. In that moment of time. Yeah. In June, in a couple of weeks, we're doing another one that we haven't announced yet. That's going to be- You don't want to announce it this second? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) We're breaking a lot of news here. But I think- there is a real ability to do things that are creative, that at just bigger companies, it's harder. The runway, the amount of meetings, and the reason to actually do something like that, there's a lot less momentum around stuff like that. Yeah. I think Anna's a born business builder. <laughs> she didn't even know that, but she is. <laughs> trying. <laughs> no, I sensed it on the Zoom. But I'd be remiss if I didn't also talk about, as part of the conversation we're having about launching a business during early 2021, that you did launch it just before this January 6th auspicious day, mm-hmm. uh, the storming of the Capitol and the horrifying violence that, and the rage that the world witnessed on that day. And you, Jake, were actually in the Capitol reporting from the Capitol that day. So when you look back at it now, I mean, what was the biggest takeaway, launching the business, reporting uh, from that moment, the timing of everything could not have drawn more attention to the importance of what Punchbowl is all about. And obviously, I should say that Punchbowl is the secret service code name for the Capitol building. If, yes. if don't know that. <laughs> so it's very emotive in the sense that it's where we live and report. Takeaway was... We've been saying our other co-founder, John Bresnahan, who we invited here today, but is tied to his lovely DC. He and I have been working next to each other with Anna in the Capitol for more than a decade. We are very big proponents of being there at all times, no matter where there is. Mm -hmm. If there's a big congressional race, we're there. If there's a big whatever, we're always there. The takeaway is democracy's fragile, right? I mean, I think January 6th showed that we were vulnerable as a capital, as a capital community. We took too much for granted. Shows the power of words. You know, it's funny. Someone asked me the other day on Twitter if there was a vote to create a January 6th commission on January 7th or January 6th, how many votes would it have gotten in the House and Senate? And it would have probably gotten 400 in the House and 90 in the Senate. So those are my main takeaways. So also from the journalism point of view, I think what we were doing that day is we were bringing readers along for the ride. Our friend John Harris, who's the founder of Politico, always used to tell us that the brilliance of 60 Minutes is that you saw... Steve Croft bust into the door and, you know, and and Mike Wallace, and you saw them doing their job. Right. We try to do that as much as humanly possible, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think a couple of things. I would say, Jake, I would not have necessarily launched January 1st. We we worked up until December 31st at our previous job. We launched January 3rd. Okay, January 3rd. So we had two days off. We took our first credit cards on January 1st for subscribers. We sent our first email out. But it was very fortuitous for us in terms of having the world's eyes on the Capitol. Unfortunately fortuitous. Unfortunately fortuitous. Obviously, no one thought it was going to happen. But the sense that we felt like Jake and Brez were tweeting, we're going live on videos, we're doing television. And it was a time where obviously the world's attention was on the Capitol and to have Punchbowl News launch at that moment and to be the experts that people were turning to to say, what is happening here? You couldn't have had more eyeballs on it. I think that was really helpful. I also think that, I mean, we were trying to send emails and special alerts. You have to remember, we're only four people. Which is pretty wild to think about. Yeah, very nimble. We're we're adding some folks, which we're excited about. But I mean, it was scary. It was. Yes, it was very scary. Because one thing we always talked about, John Bresnan and I always, was if 
the building was infiltrated. It's so big. It's just so massive. It would take weeks to get people out. Because there's all these hidden tunnels. Just, there's places yeah. you've never, you know, yeah, you don't even just, know. Yeah, there's so many twists and turns. And there's the Capitol. Then there's the three House office buildings, three Senate office buildings, Library Congress, another couple buildings. They're all connected underground, right? So, I mean, you could have people crawling through the buildings for days. Luckily, they brought in SWAT teams and stuff and got them out quickly. But it just makes you wonder... You know, I always felt Anna said this, too. It's like, you know, you always tell your parents and your loved ones, I'm safe. I'm in the Capitol. Every time, like, you know, because there's so many protests in D.C. And my parents are you know, calling me, oh, you know, are you safe? And I would say, you know, I'm in the safest place in the entire world. You know, there's <laughs> cops and you go through magnometers and all this stuff. And then obviously that now looks very Pollyannish given yeah. what happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, when you launch a business and when you do anything important, you want people to pay attention. Yes. No matter how risky it is or the danger. You want people to pay attention, so you have something to say. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all about expression. The business has uh, obviously gotten off to a strong start as a result of that, and now mm -hmm. the responsibility kicks in. And people always ask me, given the backing of Kindred, I wouldn't say it's a backing of uh, bridging the gap between Wall Street and D.C. Right. A lot of people like to say that a lot. I think it's really about creating the right expression of what's most important and relevant about the laws and the regulations and how they affect the country and the world. But what do you think about what is misunderstood about D.C. and the broader ecosystem? Because you're <laughs> living in the capital chamber, and what's the relevance of coming out of that chamber into what happens in our society? People are not rational actors. That is the 30,000-foot takeaway, is that members of Congress are not rational actors. They are not responsive to what we see as public sentiment. If they were, there would be, this is not a partisan statement, it's just a statement of fact, there would be new gun laws, there would be new immigration laws, we wouldn't be, you know, trillions of dollars in debt, because those are all broadly popular propositions, curbing guns, a more welcoming immigration system, less federal spending in the long term, not in the immediate I think that people don't understand how they make their decisions. They make their decisions based on, it's like a popularity contest in a lot of ways. Members of Congress are hewed more into partisan districts than ever before. They go home to voters that basically want to hear one thing and one thing only. And there's, you know, 20 to 30 competitive districts in America. And those districts are so heavily saturated with ads that the message just gets completely muddled. So our political system is very... I wouldn't say irreparably broken, but it's definitely sick and broken. Don't you think so, Anna? I do think so. I also would say, I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. I do think people don't understand how important staff are. I think that there's people that are very, very steeped in experts in a lot of these issues that have worked for 25 years and they don't get paid very much money and they're not there because it's certainly not because it's glamorous. And I think that there's a real public service sentiment that sometimes gets lost. Like, oh, it's Hollywood for ugly people or whatever, right? Maybe that's true. But I think that unlike Hollywood, where people are making, you know, tens of millions of dollars, these people are making a government salary and are doing it because they believe in the cause. Yeah, I think that's right. I think also people are doing it to advance their boss's interests and sure. to get them into leadership and to raise more money and to sometimes to get on TV more. And people get on me all the time on this for saying this stuff on TV, and I am guilty of it, but I think it's true. When the answer is, will Congress do something, the general safe answer is no. It's much easier <laughs> to not do something to right. get something done. Yeah. Well, do, do you think they're doing it more because of power or influence? Two Probably. different things. Probably a little bit of both. 
That's a good question. I haven't thought of it in that maxim before. Influence can really grow outside of DC and change the world powers sometimes. I think they're not doing it because of that. I think they're doing it because of power. Right, Anna? Don't you think so? I think what's hard is it's hard to make a generalization. Each individual, some people are much more focused on their outward power or influence or, you know, versus what's happening in the dome, under the dome. I think that's right. We were having coffee the other day with a pretty prominent Republican senator who was telling us that he goes to meetings with big donors and they're talking about, oh, their Democrats are going to blow up the filibuster and Democrats are going to do this. And he's sitting there like, who is telling these people these things? And I think it's because the media dumbs things down because binary narratives are easy to explain yeah. and thereby misinformation kind of takes hold. Yeah. Okay. So what should our listeners and everyone out there be paying attention to as we get closer to the midterms? Oh man, uh, a lot. As we get closer to the midterms, who knows what we're going to be talking about? We're in June 2021. The rest of this year is going to be trying to pass trillions more dollars of spending. Congress has spent five or six trillion dollars post-COVID. A lot of it was well spent. Some of it was misspent or poorly spent. And I think both sides on truth serum, as our friend Jim Vandehei likes to say, would concede that. How long is that tail? What does the world look like coming out of COVID? And how much do people say, my government did that and it was good? The House is controlled by Democrats, presidency, obviously Joe Biden's president. So 9.99999 times out of 10, Democrats lose the House, lose an average of 25 seats. Republicans need to win five or six seats to win the majority. So Democrats should, by all historical standards, lose. One example, recent example, when that didn't happen was after 2001. The Republicans kept the House of Representatives after, sorry, 2002, after the 2001 attacks. Is COVID that kind of event? Obviously, it's a, many more people died as a result of COVID than 9-11. But is that a societal groundbreaking, shaking a societal event like September 11th was? And do they say, oh, Democrats were in control and they helped us get out of this? I think it really matters where the economy is. I mean, I think fundamentally, do people feel like their life is better under Joe Biden or worse under Joe Biden? I think for Democrats in the House in particular, which you didn't talk about, which was the redistricting, makes it very difficult for Democrats, even if they thread the needle perfectly, which is always difficult to do in terms of legislation and different things like that, in terms of how they're feeling about themselves in the country. These districts are not meant to be democratic. Yeah. Is the economy good? And is the economy good for everybody? And also, are gas prices high? Do people feel inflation? Do people feel Mm -hmm. not? Is the stock market up? Yeah, it's not about the stock market. You know, and that's another misconception is that people in Congress are paying attention to like the momentary shifts of the stock market. I have friends on Wall Street ask me that all the time. Don't they see what's happening with the semiconductor? Like, no, they don't care what's (laughs) happening with that semiconductor stock. Yeah. And China. I mean, they do care about China. They care about the macro, but they don't care about the momentary shifts in like tech stocks. They care about their constituents. Yeah. And a lot of people don't own stocks. And a lot of people are worried about getting a gallon of milk or filling up their car. And if those things are expensive, more expensive than they were, or if people believe they're more expensive than they were, or people believe their taxes went up, that's a problem, right? Yeah. Taxes don't necessarily people. It's a misconception. I don't think taxes have to go up. I think people need to think their taxes went up. Well, so you have these great products and services, but you also have these great surveys, but also the power matrix, which I yeah. love. Oh, yes. The power matrix is a measurement that describes who is having a good week or a bad week in D.C. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a little bit of a caveat when this is going to air, but who's having a good week and a bad week this week? How do you determine the power matrix? Well, on Thursday afternoon... Is it an algorithm? <laughs> it's a brain trust. It's a brain trust. <laughs> on Thursday afternoon, Anna will email us and say, I have bad news for you. We got to do the power matrix. <laughs> and at that point, we were already, you know... 12 newsletters into the week and we're like, oh, God. <laughs> it reminds me of the highbrow, lowbrow from the New York. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, well, it was, what we really did, it was, we based it off of 
at least in our minds, the approval matrix in the back of New York magazine. I love it. It's That's a, much more complex than yes, what we're doing. Yeah, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll get there one day. One time we put someone's boss down, they called me up and they said, this is not fair. You're having an opinion. I was like, yeah, we are having an opinion. And my opinion is your guy had a bad week. People love this stuff because they love to see how we see other people. Mm. Uh, they're obsessed with the coverage of themselves. We've always viewed the world and who's up and who's down. That's how we were trained at Politico to view the world, right, mm -hmm. Anna? Yeah, no, I, but I think it's fun and I think people often don't want to do that, right? They want to pull their punches and don't want to say who's having a good week or who's actually having kind of... Like when Ron Johnson says there wasn't an insurrection and it was a bunch of people peacefully protesting, like, that's idiotic and we need to be able to say that's idiotic. Right. And he's having a bad week. Yeah, he's having well, a this week, no, Congress <laughs> isn't in session. I think we're probably taking this week off of the power matrix, are we? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it means everyone's having a good week. Yeah, yeah everyone's, everyone's back good. home. They're just excited everyone's to having good. Well, if Joe Biden gets an infrastructure deal, he'll have a good week. If Shelley yeah. Morecaffito gets one, she'll have a good week. Yeah, we just thought it's like a fun feature. It's a fun way to finish the Friday. Yeah, 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 I like that. Talk about the figures that you guys light up covering our uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and uh, and also John Boehner. Do you do you think that this is going to be Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi's last term? Yes, mm -hmm. but we've been thinking that for twelve years. And do you <laughs> think that she'll be able to pull off the infrastructure bill? I think that. Nancy Pelosi is probably the only person who could pull it off, honestly. I mean, I think it will be her swan song, biggest legislative achievement after Obamacare, after COVID. I think that if there's anybody who could get it done, if they find a way to get it done, and that's a big if, right? I mean, in terms of, is it bipartisan, which we I don't think, think it's going to be bipartisan, probably much more of a Democrats go their own way. I still think it's going to be a pretty big lift. I agree with you. If Republicans drop off, which I assume they will, she'll push it through and she'll do it with just absolute brute force. Yeah. One thing we like to say about Nancy Pelosi, and this is an interesting thought for people who run companies or do whatever, like she picks a point in the distance and she knows she's going to get there. She doesn't know how. She doesn't know what's going to push her off track in any moment during that trek to that point, but she just gets there. Yeah. And we've said this a million times, but like Paul Ryan and John Boehner, who we both covered and they were both figured relatively big in our book, they just panicked a lot. They just got really nervous and were like, oh, no, no, we got to do something else. We got to do this. Nancy Pelosi doesn't do that. That is an upside and a downside. I think it's much more an upside, but she's just a lot less susceptible. Same with Mitch McConnell. We've said this both to them, I think, in public, is that their politics could not be more different, but they are very similar in terms of how they lead. Yeah. And um, talk about the media with respect to this presidency versus the last presidency, because mm. a lot of talk around uh, media and news outlets was that the Trump presidency fueled the business models of the news organizations because it was all in the news all the time. Mm -hmm. And the, the Biden-Harris presidency is different, uh, yeah. I would say. So have you felt like the air like suck out of the room a little bit? Not and for the, us. I'm not sure that our product would have even really worked as well in the Trump administration. Maybe it would have worked differently. It would have worked differently, I would say. I had a senior White House person say to me a couple months ago, it's just going to get really boring and you guys don't know how to cover legislating. Not you guys, but like you guys, the press. Yeah. I think people treat Biden with softer gloves than the people who are covering the personalities and the gossip stuff. I think Biden gets an easier lift. I think that's a fair thing to say. I think the Trump relationship with the media was just so beyond repair at the end. Don't you think so? Yeah, I think there was fatigue, too. I mean, I think you had people that have been covering him and getting whacked every day by people inside the White House all about the coverage. I think the, the just total dumpster fire of news every single day. And there was a real fatigue at the end. One of the things that 
we've seen a lot more of is there's just a return to normalcy in terms of pace, in terms of timing. They do press briefings. There's a sense of when things are going to happen. And probably just like people in general, the press also likes that, right? They know that when there's a rollout, they're going to have these experts that are going to be ready to talk about it, these members of Congress. I mean, it's just a little bit more, I think, um, predictive. And you can also just get people to answer questions like, yeah. okay, so what is your red line on infrastructure? What do you think of this proposal? In the Trump White House, they just weren't oriented toward policy. Well, what about the other way around, the Trump presidency towards the press versus the Biden and Harris presidency towards the press? What's the posture towards the press overall? I think it's, I mean, completely different, particularly at the end. It's hard to remember. I mean, I feel like it's the... Or this one now. Yeah, I mean, I would say now I think that they expect an exchange. I mean, I think they don't answer all the questions. They're not like... Yeah, they try to hide information. Not They're not crooks. I'm not, I'm not saying anyone's crooks, but they're not trying to hide information in an illegal way. But they're not forthcoming. Their job is to keep information to some degree from reporters, and our job is to get that information out of them. So there's a natural tension. I knew a lot of people in the last White House because a lot of people came from Capitol Hill, and we weren't covering it in the White House press corps when we were at Politico, so we probably had a little bit easier of a relationship. I knew Mark Meadows. I knew Alyssa Farah, the communications director. We just had a much freer exchange of ideas, I think, than some people had. And this administration, I think also, we have a very good rapport with them because they know what we're trying to do. And for example, I got a call from somebody at the White House last night who I didn't give them a heads up on something we were going to write about the White House. And he wasn't calling screaming at me. He was just like, hey, you guys are usually pretty good about this. I want to flag this for you. Not a big deal. But next time, give me a heads up. And I was like, yeah, cool. And the conversation was over. It wasn't like, you're an asshole, you know, go to yeah, hell. Yeah. It was just like, okay, cool. Penalty flag. Yeah. yeah. Call you later. Talk to you soon, you know. Yeah. But Anna's right. It just got so toxic at the end between COVID and just so much back and forth that it was. And I think there was a lot of, I mean, the, the, the press is at fault, too, I think, in some respect. I, I do think so. I think the other thing that was really difficult around it, though, is that when you have an executive who's the only person who knows what's going to be next, yes. is it surrounded by a team of people who have been their advisors for 20 years who can kind of read and know where, where they're going to go? Trump would call a member of Congress who's a backbencher, a Republican House member, and get a different idea and then kind of go with it. That's unheard of for most public elected officials. And remember, Mnuchin, Steve Mnuchin, then the Treasury Secretary, cut a deal with Congress on a COVID relief bill, and then Trump pulled the rug out from under them. This happened multiple times in the administration. So covering that when only one person has the answer and there are no marching orders became difficult. It's I hard think. to know for, who's on the even level. Even for us, right? For people who are focused on legislating and deal cutting and that kind of stuff. This is stylistic, but do you think that there's any more or less effectiveness of this administration versus the last one? Yeah, I just think I've never understood why it's a good strategy to be adversarial to the press. And I'm not saying we, the press, is perfect. We're not. But I think that, generally speaking, you're going to get a easier shake if you just treat people like humans. I can't tell you how many times people call, yell at us, and we're just like, listen, we're not going to talk to you like this. This is not a professional conversation. So when you want to have a conversation with us that's normal, and we could agree to disagree, or we could talk out our problems like normal human beings great, but I'm just not going to get in a shouting match. I don't get paid enough to have like a screaming match, death match with you. And we had that public one with Sean Spicer when we were at Politico where we did an event with him and he like brought all this stuff on stage to make fun of us. And we were like, what is going on here? We're like adults. You're like a 40 year old man. Get a grip. You know, (laughs) let's all just be normal and treat each other with respect and we'll be better off at the end of the day. All right. Well, I want to talk about the world of technology and journalism and media and the government because we have 
been seeing a lot of benefits from technology to state up front because like this, we can reach people now in mass scale, which is great to have a voice. And it's not just us. I mean, people can do that around the world. But now we have platforms that obviously have control or power in parts of the world over many of those voices, including in some cases, the president of the United States. And so we had in the last presidency, the president shut down by uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and other platforms like Twitter. In other parts of the world like China, that would never happen. It's the opposite. Right. So like- Because uh, <laughs> they are the platform. Because they are the platform. <laughs> so, so those are two different kind of systems of government, state-owned, state-controlled media or kind of media-controlled states. What's the right answer? We're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Florida, like many parts of the world, taxes and controlled media, et cetera, have uh, an exception to the rule. And you saw obviously what happened, uh, I think, two weeks ago, where DeSantis passed the bill that uh, if uh, anyone takes off a federal or a government official in Florida, they're fined $250,000 per day. If they can enforce that or not, I'm not really sure. Where do you fall out on that until there's regulation of tech or some kind of a middle ground? How does it play out? What do you think? (laughs) This is not our area of specialty. So I think in terms of tech regulation and what is happening, and it's a big issue in Washington right now. So I want to be- I know you're not going to solve state-owned media. Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) So I just, I think it's important to just like take a little bit of a step back. Obviously, democracy is super important. I think having freedom of the press is very important. Oftentimes tech moves in a much faster way than government does to regulate it. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. If you go back, five or 10 years, every Republican and every Democrat wanted to go to Silicon Valley to go schmooze up Facebook and go schmooze up Twitter. And now there's a universal whiplash of people, both Republicans and Democrats, kind of hating on big tech. But I think this kind of patchwork of laws is because there is no overarching policy in federal policy. I could tell you what members of Congress say. There's so many members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that would say privately, Well, Facebook's a private company. They could do whatever they want. The government should not get involved with whether a private company doesn't allow the president to have a voice or whoever to have a voice. A lot of people will say that behind the scenes. I mean, you even saw Bernie Sanders say, I think a couple months ago, makes him feel uncomfortable when Facebook took Donald Trump off. And obviously, Bernie Sanders is no fan of Donald Trump. This doesn't break down in neat party lines, I'd say. Right, Anna? Like other issues might. Yep. No, I think that's right. But it did reach the Hill, right? Because there was a fairness doctrine regulation coming to the Hill, and there may be another one coming to the Hill, right? I mean, this is going to be something that the Hill, and when you look at the canvas, which is the staffer uh, survey we were talking about earlier, like they think there could be actually bipartisan regulation on tech, because it's like one of the few areas where you see both Republicans and Democrats coming together. I think the question is going to be, a lot of the tech platforms have tried to do circumvent that or say, hey, we're actually going to police ourselves and we're going to do all of these things so you don't need to regulate us. Regulation's coming. I think it just depends on what it looks like. We can't tell you. We used to do this when we were at Politico and we'll do it again now that COVID's over. We used to travel and be evangelists for Playbook and we'll do that again for Punchbowl News now. But we used to go meet with entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and in LA and stuff. And I'm sure you hear this all the time. And they say, well, my product just makes so much sense. Why would the government want anything? Like, they're why never going to regulate us. They're never going to regulate us. And we just sit there like, oh, God, this guy doesn't know what's coming. You're the next thing in fintech. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm the next thing in fintech, too. Don't worry. Annas could speak more about this. But I think the tech companies have taken a much more aggressive and proactive posture toward politics than they did, what, five, 10 years ago? Yeah, but it's it's so cyclical. I mean, remember Microsoft? I mean, it's like you you have to kind of you go back in time and these kinds of conversations continue to pop up, whether it was before it was Bill Gates when he was head of Microsoft, didn't care about Washington, right? Famously, right? And then that kind of came to rue the day 
and yep. then they finally got a tech lobbyist. You see and we had this conversation with political action committees recently yes. where companies said, we're not going to give any political money. And I was listening to, I think, Kara Swisher did a great podcast with, I think, the CEO of Microsoft. And he basically said, our lobbyists tell us this is the price of admission. So if you don't want to play this game, like we're not going to have these people's ears. Yeah. You mentioned Amazon being a sponsor and an advertiser. I thought maybe you could be really helpful to draw a bridge, forget Wall Street and D.C., but between D.C. and Silicon Valley of kind of creating an understanding of how... We could create the conversation. The conversation, yeah. yeah. We, I don't I'm not think, saying you could regulate. Yes, but, like, right. <laughs> but if there's a view of an adversarial relationship, you could create more of a bridge relationship because ultimately it's going to come down to a compromise solution, right? At the end of the day, I think that's probably right, that everything turns out to be a compromise. What we've seen is from an editorial point of view and a live editorial point of view, we've tried to foster conversations that help make sense of things, right? And that's not mm-hmm. kind of the best way to put that's it. Right. Yeah. We've tried to do that during COVID, and I think we're going to do a lot more of that going forward. Obviously, you're a journalist, but if you had a forum where you hosted uh, a number of the uh, staffers with technology executives and had, this is, this is the uh, form of understanding and having a get-to-know-you session, that could be probably pretty interesting, right? Yeah, I think you see a lot of that kind of convening. It's probably a little bit more difficult in D.C. where there's so many ethics regulations yes. and so many barriers to entry, but, you know, we're always looking to create conversation around content. Yeah. <laughs> Very on message. That's right. Let me ask you about how you view yourselves as independent journalists now because of Punchbowl, and then also looking at the legacy outlets, so to speak. You're often on MSNBC with our friend Stephanie Rule and others, which I wouldn't consider sort of legacy, but obviously they're established news outlets. So how do you toggle between like the independent platform that you have now and where to go and sort of create home bases around the different uh, other outlets. And how do you think about that for journalists overall? Like, how do you go between different forums? I would just say the rise of the last 10 years has probably been the brand of journalists as individuals. It was just in your times or, in, or The Economist, right? They yeah. don't have bylines. And all of a sudden you've seen a real, I think, change over with Twitter and with a lot of other platforms where journalists, they're a lot less censored. They're much more accessible to people. I think everything that we do with Punchable News is around how do we amplify and get more people and eyeballs to know what we're doing. So for us, we're both MSNBC contributors. I would say the same thing at a Punchable News event as I would say on television, as I would say here. Um, But I do think it's all like a big kind of ecosystem, right? I mean, our daily reporting is out at least three times a day. This week, it's only once a day, thankfully. Then we go out and we trumpet that and we talk about it and we create conversation on cable on MSNBC and, you know, other NBC properties, whether it's streaming or whatever, Mm -hmm. wherever they want us. Yeah, we don't really view the cable stuff as like legacy media. I think we go on TV because our sources and our people are watching and we want them to see us and to hear us with our latest reporting. And we think it's a good synergistic relationship between us and NBC, and it has been for years. It just amplifies. Yeah, it amplifies what we do. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to end on a bit of a lightning round. You can each answer, or you can choose, or you can pass. We have, good, we, we yeah, have, we, a, good, okay, we have a good mind share on okay, these Yeah, You've answered a few of these already, so you could pass, or you could stamp it again. Uh, so rapid fire, I'm going to ask about the 10 questions, see your, your quick views. So infrastructure bill happening. Has to happen. Probably, yeah. Okay. Future of the Republican Party. Who is it? Donald Trump. Right now, (laughs) for for sure. For the immediate future and the modest long-term future. Okay. Midterm predictions, Republican or Democrats take the House? We got out of the prediction game. I'll stay in it. Republicans take the House. Yeah, Republicans take the House. I think that's right. We're back in it. (laughs) Um, Formation of a third party by Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney? They might try to do it, but I don't think so. It doesn't go anywhere. 
is tech regulation going to happen in Congress? And who's the driver of it? I think it does happen. I think it's going to be much more piecemeal, though, rather than a big package. But I do think it's like the Josh Hawley's of the world and then like the David Cicilline's of the world. It's like a weird right-left alliance. Okay. China and more countries like China introducing cryptocurrencies in the coming years. Yes. Oh, yes. And yes. I think this is another thing Congress they, is so slow to. They don't know. Yeah, they are not ready for it. I mean, if you watch some of these hearings, man, woof, they are just like so behind the curve on this. Another chance for a convening. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Pelosi's last year, you said that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Congress's outlook on the cryptocurrency. We don't know yet. But we don't know. And I think that it'll take like another four years for them to even start to think yeah, about but, it. But if you were in the cryptocurrency biz, now's the time to get in and find your allies. Completely agree with you. And now's the time. And I see a lot of people doing this. You see cryptocurrencies and financial institutions creating media around their products, which I think right. is brilliant because I think it helps them kind of control their narrative. Okay. Vice President Harris's platform issue. issue. What is the issue that she's focusing oh. on? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, she keeps getting dumped on, whether it's the border or now it's... Voting rights. But I mean, listen, I think she's been an outspoken voice on racial equity in the last couple months, but she has big problems to solve that Joe Biden has put on her plate. You know, every vice president gets the short end of the stick. So she's the latest in a long line of short ends of the stick for VPs. You make a smart point. I think racial equity could be her legacy issue. She can speak credibly on it and I think does really well. And I think that this country, the moment we're in right now, is one where we need somebody to do that. And you would think that her stock is going to start to rise just based on time coming up now? I think she's at a big inflection point. Both the Northern Triangle immigration issues and the voting rights issues that Biden has put on her plate are huge moments for her. And people hold you responsible for that. People do. And and the left does, too. Because if she doesn't get some sort of something done on immigration that's tangible, and it's tough because you're asking countries to control their own citizens from coming into America. Very difficult. What were you going to say? Sorry. I also think that the bigger question to me is the existential question of the party, the two-party system. And will she be the inherent legacy holder post Biden, or will there be other challenges to end a Democratic primary? And I think that's something to watch. Yeah. Immigration was my next question. Is immigration going to be a topic that is going to be settled, or there's going to be one of these uh, annoying, frustrating issues that is permanently problematic? We saw a a glimmer of hope earlier this year. This is the one issue, I would say, where the solution is clear to everybody, (laughs) but both sides have difficulty getting there. Democrats have traditionally, and they say they don't this time, but traditionally wanted everything at once instead of going piecemeal because you can't get the small things without getting the big things and vice versa. Republicans have just been unwilling to face the reality that there are undocumented people in this country who need to be documented and brought into society in a whole way. And both sides have not had the political courage. Do you agree with me on that? I do. I have a hard time saying it. Oh, solved, I'm not saying it'll get done. This, I'm just yeah. saying it's one of I the mean, issues that doesn't get done, but we know how it'll be solved at the end of the day. Right. The Border security, is- documentation, and we did a great event with Senator Durbin, who's been working on this issue for a really long time. And I actually thought he had pretty clear eyes about what Democrats could get and where he thought his Republican colleagues could be. There's certainly will on the part of Democrats and Biden. But I just I have a hard time seeing Republicans come to the table at it in a serious way. Yep. How effective is Chuck Schumer? That's a really good question. He's getting his sea legs. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He's new. He's a new leader. Senate is a notoriously difficult place to manage. There was a big China bill on the floor last week where the chamber just was out of control. Not the style of Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell, who would have just been like, you're sitting here until we get this done. He kind of let the place run wild a little bit and punted a football that a lot of people thought he shouldn't have punted. Effective, but learning. I'd say he's learning, right? I think that's right. Yeah. 
Okay, and are we past COVID now? Are we going to be moving into the summer with a happiness and health? I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I do think so. I think so. I'm saying that optimistically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're here without you're masks. In expert mode. You're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, vaccinated. I appreciate you guys coming. Thanks and for it's having great us. to see Thanks everyone. So much. I'm, yes. I'm happy to be partners, and uh, I could be backing better people. So congratulations on everything so far, and best of luck moving forward. Thanks. Thank for you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.